0: I thought I would share just a little bit about my journey as I looked back through my family tree and all of you were like, oh no, Uh, this could take a while. Don't worry. Uh, I've enjoyed working with Tom Anderson and Casey Smith. Uh, The three of us have been sharing some of the different things we've discovered as we've kind of gone back through and, and tried to uncover some of the lineage that we've got in our families. And amazingly, Tom Anderson's great ancestors and my great ancestors were uh, war uh, generals and, and, and fought side by side. It's so cool uh, that that is something we found. But whenever you go into a task like that, and no one in my family had really done this, and so I had no idea what I would find. There, i be honest, I was a little nervous, right? I mean, you, the last thing you want to find is that your great-great-great-grandfather was a horse thief, Right? or a bank robber, or, or some war criminal, and, uh, and you know, kind of tarnish the name a little bit. And so you're, you, you have in your mind what you hope, and it turns out, by God's grace, um, my ancestors going way back into the 1700s were Presbyterian-rooted folks, and they came over and uh, did some church planting work, and, uh, and South Carolina, apparently I'm supposed to root for Clemson. Because that's on Pickens County, South Carolina. So, hey, that's cool. Now I know who to root for. So, the family tree, I mean, you're, you're hoping that in a sense, what you find will put your best foot forward. What's amazing is when you read the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, it's incredible to see because the Lord went out of his way to highlight the more scandalous of those in the family tree of Jesus in the genealogy. First of all, there were women who were named, which is extremely rare. And of those women who were named, every single one was kind of like, whoa. I mean, can you believe that? Not only is that the line, but that was the plan of God. Let me just show you a few of these. First of all, Tamar is the first woman to be named. She was uh, the, the lady who disguised herself as a prostitute seduced her father-in-law, Judah, and became pregnant by him through that child, the line would continue. Isn't that amazing? That's horrible. It gets worse. Rahab, not not a Jew, a, a Gentile, not, a Canaanite. Think of this. You have Rahab. She is a an established and known prostitute in Jericho. This is her profession. And when the spies come, Salmon and uh, Caleb, they come into the land. She hides them in her house and helps them escape. And she just says, remember me when you come. And, and by God's grace, uh, she, and her, and through that faith, she was spared when the walls fell. It was really the only survivor of that attack. She was brought into the family. Salmon then married her, and interesting enough, we're going to look a little more closely, they had a son. You know what his name was? Boaz. Okay, keep that in your mind. That is going to come up again very soon. Now, the third woman, uh, woman mentioned in this family tree is Ruth. Again, just you can't even imagine the scandal this would be. The fact that you would have a Gentile Moabite who is in the Scriptures with a book of the Bible named after her. It's shocking. And then you go, of course, to Bathsheba, specifically mentioned in the genealogy, not by her name, but by her identity as the wife of Uriah. She suffered sexual abuse and the murder of her husband by Israel's greatest king who then took her as his own wife, and their first child died, and their second child lived and became the king after, King Solomon. That would be the the son of the line. And then you come all the way down then to Mary, Joseph and Mary. Think of this. We've talked uh, previously at Christmas about the scandal. This was pregnant as a teenager before her wedding. Oh, and the child's father was not her betrothed. I should have capitalized father because it was the Holy Spirit. She was impregnated by the Holy Spirit, not by Joseph. And all of this before the wedding. What a scandal. This haunted Jesus throughout his ministry. They constantly drew attention back to this. He was illegitimate in their eyes. Now, if you were going to give a lineage of Jesus and try to call attention to his nobility, his qualifications. The last thing you would want to do is include any of these women on the list. Not so with God. God delights to spotlight the power of his transforming grace. And this book that we're about to dive into is one of those that does just that. Ruth Naomi they are examples of God's incredible grace that He shows to sinners like you and me. So we come to the book of Ruth. The theme for this whole series, eight weeks in the book of Ruth, is a story of redemption. A story of redemption. And it's going to be an incredible journey. I'm, I've been breaking out the different weeks and kind of studying through the flow and i uh, <laughs> It's a story of love and hope, but it's not going to feel like that today because in order for a story of redemption to happen, you have to have a need, you you have to have a situation and and that is where we're going to journey today and and next week in chapter one. It's, It's bleak, it's difficult, but this is a love story. It's one of the most incredible stories of scripture in that it just, it flows and the hope and, and the way it's woven together, it narrated incredibly, perfectly, as you read the story. What's interesting as well is that it is a story that, that tells about great suffering, incredible sovereignty, and it draws our attention to the glory of Jesus Christ. This book is about Jesus. The, the book of Ruth is about Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to see time and again. What's also interesting about the book of Ruth is how the Lord is at the very middle of all of these things, but rarely do we notice that at first. We, we kind of experience it almost like Naomi and Ruth would have experienced it. There's not uh, explicit attention drawn to God is doing this, and this is what his plan is, and this is why this happened, and this is how it works. But when you finish the story and you stand back, you say, wow. What an amazing masterpiece of God's sovereign work in the lives of His people. And that's what I'm excited as we journey together to see. So today, the sermon is titled, God at Work in the Worst of Times. God at Work in the Worst of Times. I would ask you to join me in prayer as we jump into this passage. Sovereign God, glorious Savior Jesus, powerful spirit within us here, even now, moving and working in the proclamation of the word. We thank you, Holy Trinity, in all that you are, one God, for being for us through Jesus Christ. We thank you that we come as your people today to your word and and that when we open these passages. We we see glory. We we have eyes that are illumined by your Holy Spirit and hearts that are being changed and minds that are being renewed. All this is your work, and it is our joy. So come now, Lord, and work. Equip us through this story, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God at work in the worst of times. I want to just begin by considering verse 1a. Days of the Judges, verse 1, this is where the the setting really uh, establishes for us. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Okay, we just need to pause here and rewind the tape. Now, those of you who journeyed with Dan Long in that class through the judges, this is going to be really fresh for you. This is the Days of the Judges. Where did we leave off? Well, we left off in Exodus. And then there was 38 years of wandering in the desert and the the giving of the law and all of the Pentateuch then was, was set for the people. And then the conquest, right? Joshua leads them in and they are to take down the ites and completely deal with them. But guess what? They didn't finish the job. So Israel now is in the promised land. They have settled in their locations, but they did not fully finish the work. And they have not heeded the warnings that God has given them. Do not whore after the idols of the land. The Ten Commandments should ring out in the people of God, but they fail. They are stiff-necked, they rebel, and they sin against the Lord again and again. You could describe these days as 400 years from 1400 BC roughly to about 1000 BC of of cyclical disobedience. Israel hardens their heart. They rebel against the Lord. They marry foreign wives. They worship idols. The Lord judges them by raising up an enemy, bringing them in to oppress the Lord's people. God sovereign in that way, both in punishing, uh, disciplining them. Those nations that come are responsible for the sins they commit. And then God raises up a judge who then causes people to repent. And then they turn and they force back this oppressor and there's peace in the land for a little while. And they do it all over again and all over again. But there is a bit of a spiral, isn't there, to the journey through to the judges. It just gets a little bit more rough. This period of time was ugly a very difficult time to be an Israelite. This is the promised land. It was supposed to be so much better, but sin has run amok. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That, that could be the best sum-up of the entire book of Judges. This is the time in which we find the story taking place. Hmm. There was a famine in the land. Which means God was judging at this point along the way. That, that means w- when the famine is on, that means God's hand of discipline is on His people. He is bringing discipline upon them. Listen to this in Leviticus 26, 3 and 4. If you walk in my statutes, the Lord says, and observe my, my commandments and do them, not just know them, but, but live them, do them, then... I will give you your rains in their seasons, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Do not doubt this was a fertile land. It was the land of milk and honey. It was an abundant land. Only when God's blessing was upon it, their sin had brought about God's righteous punishment and judgment, and he can turn off the water spout. There was a drought which led to no food. All rooted in their sin. How will Israel respond? That's really the first question that should come to mind. What is going to happen? At what point are we in the judge work? Who's God going to raise up to call the people to repent of their sins? And is he going to have mercy How many more people will die? Hmm. That is the setting for this story, this love story that unfolds. Now, verse 1b and 2. A man of Bethlehem in Judea went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife was Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judea. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. A few things to observe in this. First of all, you have a man from Bethlehem, uh, which literally means house of bread. Okay, that's that's what Bethlehem means. It is a bread basket. The fact that that God had made it such that there was a famine in the breadbasket shows you to the extent of Israel's hardness of heart in their sin. That should strike us as somewhat ironic. A man of Bethlehem, no insignificant city. He says he was an Ephrathite, which is interesting as well, which uh, really wasn't in his area. He was actually down in Judah, uh, but he was an Ephrathite. So he was a little south of where he was, uh, stationed as they settled in the promised land. His name means, my God is king. This is the patriarch of the family, right? An ordinary family. Just a, it's an ordinary family. But they, they have a patriarch, a spiritual leader of this home. He is the man. He is called by God to lead his family, to make decisions that will bless and not curse. How will his faith, his decisions affect his generations, his sons? His name says, my God is king, but his actions say something else. Here's the family of four, Elimelech and Naomi, his wife, and then their two sons. We are given very little detail about ages or, uh, you know, some of the details that you just want to know more about. Tell me about this man. Tell me how they met. Tell me what these boys are like. A little more like uh, Jacob and Esau. Cain and Abel? What were they like? Were they good boys? Were they raised in a home where my God is king? What's the nature of this? We're we're given very little detail there, but we are given an introduction to what an ordinary family would be. Now, what's interesting about the book of Ruth as well is this is not, we're not talking about shakers and movers here. These are regular people in the land, about as ordinary as it gets. It's refreshing in some ways. I mean, the book of Esther shows us uh, kind of the upper echelon experience of what it's like to shape kings and rulers and, and kingdoms. But Ruth is just commoner. These are normal people. Does God have an eye to the plight of normal people? Absolutely. The book of Ruth meets us there. They leave the promised land for Moab. This should for us be a red flag. This this waves. Oh, that's a terrible idea. Wait a second. Elimelech. Stop. Don't do it. Here's what he should be doing. Repent of his sin and trust the Lord to deliver. Trust the Lord to provide. Don't leave the land of promise for Moab. It's like, are you kidding me? Moab? Of all the places you could go. How long did the people of Israel long for the promised land? And this guy just up and leaves? This is a huge, huge mistake. Let me show you a little bit of a, on a map where we're talking. Uh, this is an older layout here. Bethlehem is right down in this area. And so just, just south Jericho over and down. He would have journeyed from Bethlehem, probably up through where Jerusalem would be, and then up across Jericho. This is uh, some history that we're going to look more closely at. And then down through where Reuben settled into Moab. Um, Not far from Sodom and Gomorrah, the, the, the salt flats down here at the bottom of the Dead Sea. Moab is over here. Not really the most fertile of places to go and sojourn. But they go there. Now, we need to learn a little bit about Moab, a little history here. Who are the Moabites? Where did they begin? Here's just a crash course in Moabites. The ancestral roots of the Moabites uh, originated when Lot's daughters, okay? You remember this? Lot's daughters, his oldest, said to the the youngest, uh, there's no man around here. We're living in a cave. So in order to keep the family name going, we need to get dad drunk and then impregnate ourselves so that we can carry on the family name. That this, this is just completely out of bounds. It's unacceptable. It's sinful. It's wrong and disastrous. His oldest daughter became pregnant and named the son Moab. That's the beginning of the Moabites. Her sister also did the same, and named her son Bin Amim, or uh, uh, he's basically the father of the Ammonites. Okay, so you've got Ammonites, Moabites—bad idea. They haunt Israel again and again and again. Unbelievable sins committed. This is a polytheistic pagan culture. These people would sacrifice. Uh, humans, many times children, to idol gods like Chemosh. I mean, we're talking very depraved and idolatrous. It's not Disneyland. I mean, we're not just going, hey, let's pack up in the minivan and cruise around the Dead Sea and, and spend some time. This is like moving to Sodom and Gomorrah. Maybe not quite that bad, but it's it's mess in place of the promised land. Remember in the book of Judges, Eglon, king of Moab, he was a very large man. God raised up the Moabites to come and punish and do damage to uh, his people for their sins. And then he raised up Ehud, his appointed judge, who basically snuck into the tent of Eglon, took his uh, hidden sword out and killed him. And then closed the doors and, and got away. And then Israel came back and they struck down 10,000 Moabites as God delivered them and they trusted the Lord. And there was peace for it, said, 80 years after that. Okay, so just a bit of context here. These are tough times, violent times, unstable times. They go to seek refuge in Moab. Repentance and faith or... Is it more like the times of the judges? Do what's right in your own eyes. You see, what happens here is that verse, the end of Judges, that hands us then into Ruth, kind of shows us that, in fact, this man, the spiritual leader of the home, this father, he was doing exactly what was common in the days of the judges. Maybe short-term, we're going to be okay. Maybe we find some food. Maybe we're able to survive for a while. But long-term, what's going to happen? Well, we're about to see days of devastation. Verse 3, Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. Again, well, how? What happened? What took place? He died. That's all we're told. He he died. Hmm. This is the judgment of God, I believe. It's God's judgment on a man who committed sin, who disobeyed the Lord, and in his hardness of heart, his failure to repent, I believe God judged him and took his life. Righteously. This is just judgment of God. He threatened this. This was was clear. This is what Elimelech had chosen and the devastation that this then meant for this little family of four. Now, Naomi is in a foreign pagan land where they've been for a while. It says they stayed there, remained there. They went to sojourn, but then they stayed. What's she going to do? She's left. She's got these two boys. Here is what the Lord would call this woman to do. Go home. Go back to Bethlehem. Take your sons and get away from this pagan culture. Go back in faith. Repent of that sin and return to the promised land. Walk with the Lord. Trust Him to provide. Does she do that? These, her two sons, verse 4, they took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpa, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. Hmm. Looks like they didn't return. They didn't go back. Instead, they did something far worse. They doubled down. That's what this is. This is This is. not only are we going to be stiff-necked and, and, and live in this foreign land when God has opened the door, parted the sea, delivered us, and cleared out the land for us to, to live in, but... Now we're going to break his commandment explicitly by marrying foreign wives. Hmm. This is deliberate disobedience. What was the dynamic between Naomi and these two boys? Was she opposed to these decisions? Was she unable to prevent these marriages? I don't know. Does she endorse it? We don't know. But she didn't go home And that window of obedience closed and awful, awful consequences are to come. You think about this commandment. Can God be more clear? Deuteronomy chapter 7. Ringing in her ears. You shall not intermarry with them. Listen, Kilion. Listen, Malon. Listen to the command of God. Don't give your daughters or your sons Take their daughters or your sons, for that would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. That's a threat. That's very clear warning. God is not pulling the rug out from them. They have chosen to do exactly what God said not to do. And in that, he follows through. God does not threaten lightly. He doesn't make empty threats. Do you feel that? It would be unfaithful, untrue. He's not a liar. If he says, I'm going to do this, if you do this, it's gonna happen. So we meet two new family members, Orpah and Ruth. Not Oprah, just if you're dyslexic. Orpah and Ruth. These are two Moabite ladies who are now related through these marriages and we don't know a thing about them we, we know so little about their backgrounds their the past but we do know this they are from an extremely pagan culture and we're going to see two very divergent paths that they walk two completely different destinations for these ladies the other thing that we can discern is that 10 years go by and no children are born Which is another way of seeing God's just punishment for these sinful decisions. Ten years, no children for either one. It doesn't mean that in all of these situations, infertility is the judgment of God. I don't mean to say that. But I would suggest in this context here, the blatancy of their sin, their disobedience to the Lord, has brought... uh, this heartache, this devastation on this family. Because here's the thing. In this time, to lose a husband is to lose the significance of that name. And if you don't have sons, you have nothing. You have have nothing. So these sons marry these these wives, but they don't have sons. The, The family name is now in peril. There is no young men, to carry this name forward. The inheritance is tied with the name. If you don't have sons, you don't have the inheritance. We're going to see this more, how significant this is next week. Ten years, no children, and then we read this absolutely devastating verse. Both Malon and Killian died so that Naomi, the woman, was left without her two sons and her husband. This is as bad as it gets. In this time, if you do not have a a, a man to provide, to work, to harvest, to have ownership in some stake of land somewhere, then you have nothing. And let alone that, she's not even in the promised land. She's in Moab. We have the darkest of days for Naomi taking place this is, this is her worst nightmare awful awful days her hardship is real what's interesting as we just stop this week in verse 5 is how is god at work in this i mean where where is this going if you're naomi you're at a total loss right there, where is the lord Going to to, to, to turn this around? How how are we going to do this? She begins to realize something needs to change. And we're going to see next week about a decision she makes that is good, right. It's one of the first bright points in this story. But today, we're just going to sit in the dark together. It's heavy. You've been there? You've been in a situation where it's bleak and you're just looking around you're like, Lord, I I know you're at work. I just, I can't quite tell. I don't know where you are. What are you doing? I need you. I, I don't know what to do. It's devastating and it's dark. Response this morning. Some passages just leave us there. And it's okay. Sometimes we need to feel that weight, that desperate need for a Redeemer, that darkness before the light. I want to think in three categories this morning. First category would be this, to walk in the fear of the Lord. I just go back to these Israelites that we've shared the journey with through Exodus. How many times God was faithful and and compassionate and patient to command them to obey over and over and over to give them his law his instruction his warnings Oh, the warnings of the lord are given for our good for our benefit son if you put your hand on the burner it will burn you don't do that don't do it that's that's a loving thing to do right listen If you disobey me, I will strike you dead. Don't do it. It's loving of God. It's, It's gracious of God to give that warning. Don't play games with holiness. Fear me. Obey me. Walk in my way. Take serious my commandments. We're not playing games here. Oh, that we would be a people increasingly that would embrace the good word of God for our good. And walk in the fear of the Lord. Revere Him. Tremble at His word with joyful surrender and obedience. There is so much blessing to be had in in a life lived that is happily submitted and surrendered to God. And so much destruction and judgment and heartache in the path of the world. So when you're tempted to go to Moab, say, no, I choose the fear of the Lord. I can't see how it's going to go. And Lord, we don't know how you're going to provide, but you are going to provide. We trust you. We will stay. We will obey you. Come what may. I would rather die in Bethlehem than have a feast in Moab. Obedience is better. Obedience is better. Young people, listen. Obedience is better. Always. It's always better. Whatever short-lived pleasure or joy you find in disobedience, it will leave you empty. Steal it away. Walk in the fear of God. Obey His commandments. Secondly, this. God's righteous judgment is real. It's real. We should just feel that here. This is the working out of this is what will happen if you obey. This is what will happen if you disobey. Here we have three men dead. They're dead. Do you not think God can take your life? He could do it today. Oh, by God's grace, we have a father. Through Jesus, we have a Father in heaven, no longer a judge. We've been forgiven. The wrath has been placed on Jesus. If you're here and Jesus is not your Savior, you face wrath. Run to Jesus. Run to the hope. Turn from your sins. Repent and be saved. Remember the sermon that Jonathan Edwards preached years ago. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. He warned those who were not in Christ that they, they they were hanging by a thread over eternal fire. And that warning he gave was done in love. He spoke words of love. Don't mess around. God is a just judge. He is righteous and holy. His punishment fits the offense Perfectly, retribution is never overdone or underdone with God. It is precise. And I don't know if Elimelech or Malon or Kilion could have told you the day that God appointed the gavel would fall of His justice upon their heads when God struck them down in their sin just like none of us know, if today will be the last. I pray that through Jesus, you would, would love to meet Him face to face. That's my longing. It's a, God's people, those forgiven in Christ, they don't fear wrath anymore. That wrath is removed. There's no condemnation. Only joy awaiting. Turn to Jesus. Run to Him from the wrath of God. Flee the coming wrath, a message that should be preached far more in our day. Number three, the sovereign grace of God. Here's what he's doing, and and we're going to see this in the weeks ahead. God is big enough to employ even sin to accomplish his best good. Let me say that again. God is big enough in His sovereign rule over all things. He governs even sin. He can govern sin in such a way that He can employ it, use it to bring about His best good, His greatest glory, and our greatest joy. That does not diminish the responsibility of the one who commits that sin. We are moral creatures, accountable for decisions that we make. And yet, God is so big, so sovereign, that he can take even those decisions, willful rebellion, and employ them to accomplish a glorious plan. If you doubt that, look at the cross. Was his plan of all? The most spectacular sin ever committed on the face of this earth was his plan. Committed by the hands of sinners, fulfilling precisely what God established as the best good for the story of redemption. And so, yes, Elimelech, he disobeyed. And and yes, Kilion and and, and Malon, they disobeyed the Lord. And God brought punishment and justice upon their heads. And here is now Naomi. Here here she is. What's she going to do? The the, the family line is done. It's gone. It's, 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 It's completely lost, right? Nope. The story of Ruth shows us the magnificent sovereignty of God's grace to meet people, ordinary people, like Naomi in that place and then tell a masterpiece of a story, writing every chapter, every word. The same God that ordained all of these things is writing your story. He's writing your story. The good, the bad, and the ugly. He's bigger than your sin. He's bigger than the most terrible decision you've ever made. He can actually take, like Paul, the murderer of Christians, and turn him into a church planner. If he can do that with Paul, imagine what he can do in your life. He's that big. Oh, and he's good. He's good. Let's pray. Lord, as we anticipate the weeks ahead, we we feel the need for a Redeemer. We have dark days for Naomi, crushing loss and terrible uh, judgment at your hand. And, And she knows that. And I pray if there would be any here who have gone through trials or even have gone through heartache and loss, I pray that they would, like Naomi will next week, turn to you, not from you, to you. They would run to you, that they would trust you. Lord, if there are any here who are experiencing your hand of discipline or or even of judgment for those who might not be saved here, if, if they're under your hand, I pray that they would see that as your love and your grace and that they would recognize your your gift to them in that guilt, that they would turn from their sin, even sins that have settled in and become normal, maybe sins that are even habitual, that they would feel the offense that they are against you and then turn to you, repenting of those sins and trusting Jesus as their Savior and Lord and walking in the fear of you We thank you for the story of Ruth. And Lord, go with us as we journey together through these chapters. In Jesus' name, amen.